Well, we're going to get into uh, Titus this morning and finish up a section that is crucial for our understanding of the church and and the structure that God has intended for the church, and it's in this section on the qualifications for elders. So turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus and look specifically at chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. To cover where we have already come, let me begin reading in verse 5. Paul writes this, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then we looked in our first at verse 6, where Paul writes, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And in that first sermon, we looked at the necessity to gauge a candidate for this office according to his conduct in the home, particularly related to his, his covenant-keeping status with his wife as well as his leadership efficacy with his children. And then we noticed last Sunday, verse 7, where Paul then moves from the domestic qualifications to qualifications that relate more broadly to life. And he gave us a list here of, of prohibited or disqualifying qualities. We see this in verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. And this morning we're going to look at the remaining verses, verses 8 and 9, and we will see here the seven positive qualities that the Apostle Paul sets as the standard. But that's not just qualities that are to mark candidates for eldership, but these are qualities that mark mature Christian living. There are things after which all Christians are to strive. Notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, controlled, holding fast, the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. As I said, these qualities, both in terms of the disqualifying qualities as well as the required qualities, all fall under that umbrella term of being above reproach. Paul repeats it at the beginning of verse 6 and again in verse 7. And we saw that there were two required qualities in the home, and we already looked at five prohibited qualities in life in general, particularly in the church. And what we're going to do this this morning is look at seven required qualities that Paul lists in verses 8 to 9. Again, these that we saw Paul are are really substantial uh, vices. And Paul calls upon Titus to examine these candidates before they ever assume a position of influence and leadership in the church, to be sure they do not manifest these things. And what were they? We saw these in verse 7, five disqualifying sins. And what I mean by disqualifying there is not that a person who manifests these things is forever disqualified. That would disqualify everyone. But it's disqualified at the time. A person who manifests these things in their current life is not qualified for leadership. These sins... 
in their expression disqualify a man from leadership. And as I mentioned last time, these sins, these disqualifying sins, also discredit any testimony before the watching world. What are they? We looked at them, and they were pride, wrath, gluttony or indulgence, aggression, and greed. Now we turn to the positive qualities, the the expected, the, the, the demanded qualities for anyone that would be considered for the office of overseer. And these qualities that we see, these seven qualities, are not intended to be an absolutely comprehensive list, but they are representative. They're representative of the kind of virtues that are needed if you're going to have someone in a position of authority who's going to make a spiritually positive impact in the lives of others, who will model what true maturity and sanctification looks like as the person present to the likeness of What are those seven positive qualities? Well, I'm going to summarize them in these words, and then we're going to look at them more in depth as we get into this text. These are the seven. Generosity, nobility, prudence, impartiality, godliness, self-control, and faithfulness. Seven qualities that mark a leader and, and provide any Christian with a positive, powerful testimony before a watching world. These are the seven qualifying virtues that Paul gave to Titus and, and, and left for him in order to find those men who would be ready to shepherd God's church, to function as stewards. So let's look now at this text as we continue this broader section here of evaluating elder candidates in general life. First, Paul says that they must be generous. Where do we find that? It's in the very first word. Paul says they must be hospitable. This is a very interesting term. They must be hospitable. When we hear that word, often we just we think of opening the front door to, to people, and certainly that is very much a part of this word. It's a compound term in the original that comes from two words, one, one of them meaning affection or love, and the other one meaning stranger. So we, we know of the philia love, and we also know of xenos, and you've heard of the term xenophobia, uh, which is the fear, phobia of strangers, xenos. But here Paul commends the opposite. It's not the fear of strangers, but the love of strangers that is to mark a candidate for eldership. This term speaks of a kind of concern that would be given to strangers, and I'll define that in just a moment, a, a, a kind of concern and a love and a selflessness and a generosity that is the exact opposite of those vices that we saw back in verse 7. Remember, at the very beginning of that list of prohibited qualities, Paul said the man cannot be self-willed, and that word for self-willed means really having a pleasure in oneself. And, and then, yeah, being fond-sorted gain and marks someone who is self-centered, and self-serving, but this quality here required in this positive sense is someone who, who is willing to give of himself sacrificially for the good of others. This was a 
a, a required quality of elders in particular. We see this back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Paul mentions the very same word in that list for Timothy there in Ephesus. The candidates were to be hospitable. Now, how do we understand hospitality in terms of the biblical context and its application for today? We can define it this way. Hospitality is the expression of charity. It's not just a warm feeling toward. It's an actual expression of charity, of good, practical good, to those who do not merit such affection by virtue of a familial or familiar relationship. Now, in terms of our families, we recognize, and even the world does, that there's a sense of obligation. If our family member is in need, it's the noble thing to do to assist that family member because they're part of us, and in the world is expected. There are also those friendships that we have, those familiar relationships. We've, we've hung around people for a time, and there's a sense of, of duty that even the world recognizes. Now, now, extending care and affection and concrete charity to people in those conditions is, is what is expected and normal, and the world is not surprised by that. But the world is surprised when that kind of care is given to someone who is not in that familial or familiar relationship. It is the expression of charity where that would not be expected. And the Apostle Paul says that elders or candidates for the office of overseer have to be known for this. They don't just give of themselves to their own family members or to those in their own clique, to those in their own circle of friends and familiar relationships. They have an openness, a generosity to anyone who comes with need, and and they're they're known for that kind of service. This was not just expected of, of the candidates for eldership. This is not something that belongs to just one category within the church. We know this from elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul commands this of all believers in, a, in texts like Romans 12, 13, where in that context there in Romans 12, Paul gives a series of instructions for ethical living for Christians. And he says this in verse 13, that these in general are to be contributing to the needs of the saints. And that means practicing hospitality that love of strangers, and this refers to Christian strangers in particular, not strangers in the formal sense, but those who are not family members and those who are not part of the circle of friends. That Christians are to be known by a kind of love that doesn't make charity contingent upon that kind of close personal relationship. We will show the charity, the goodness to others, without there being any kind of quid pro quo or any kind of sense of just pure obligation. This is what Paul requires of all believers. Peter does the same in 1 Peter 4 verse 9, using the same language. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. So in the context of the church, understandably, there's probably family relationships. There certainly are friend relationships, but... But Peter says, listen, you have to extend your charity beyond those to those you wouldn't expect to do so in the world. That has to be what marks the church. You could look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show 
hospitality. It's a, it's a command that is given. And of course, in those days, there were special applications of that to Christians who would travel from place to place. The uh, hotels would be infested with all kinds of vice and vermin. And, and as a result, it just were not good places to be. And you didn't want to go and tonight in, a, in an unbeliever's home. And so it was to be the practice of Christians to take in people from other churches as they traveled and, and, and supply for their needs and help them on their way. And this was to mark the church. Going to quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he summarizes the need for giving well when he writes this, the community of faith does not need brilliant personalities but faithful servants of Jesus and of one another. It does not lack the former, but the latter. And he's saying the church is never in a deficit of brilliant personalities. They're always there, but certainly faithful servants of Jesus and one another can sometimes be the deficit that we experience. Paul says, to Titus, listen, in this new church context in Crete, you need to find men who are going to have or already have this kind of care and charity towards strangers, and they are the ones who are fit for the office. Why? Because the entire church is to manifest. There is a, a second virtue that is, is listed here. Paul says that this candidate must love what is good. And I'm going to summarize this as they must have nobility. And what I mean by nobility isn't that they come from a prestigious blend. That is is, uh, in view here. What's interesting is that this word too in the original is is a compound word. Again, made up of the word philos or philia that, that has the idea of affection or concern. But it is paired with the word good. So it's uh, an affection for the good, an affection for good. The word speaks of one who is devoted to that which is inherently of a high quality, of a high standard, whether that is of good persons or good things. This, this quality speaks of someone who, who looks for that which is transcendently good. This was, a, this was a, a, a virtue that was even prized in the Greco-Roman world. In the Greco-Roman world, this word, a lover of good, was used to describe someone who was a respected and responsible citizen. There's that concept of nobility. And you know these people. We, we have them in our, our congregation, right? We, we know of this, that they're those people that, by virtue principally, to that which is transcendently good, we look on them as being men and women of dignity, of nobility, of honor. They they think about and they strive toward that which is principally good, not just what is pragmatically good, not just what may look good on the surface or may lead to some kind of good consequence, but they are committed to that which is truly good. We'll call them noble people. And Paul says, you need to look for these kinds of people to 
to lead the church. Now we ask the question, what is good? Wayne Grudem has a good response to this when he writes, what is good? Good is what God approves. We may ask then, why is what God approves good? We may answer, because he approves it. That is to say, there is no higher standard of goodness than God's own character and his approval of whatever is consistent with that character. You see, this is what sets the the Christian apart in terms of this kind of nobility from the kind of nobility that our world pursues. In the world, there is as well a sense of good, although that is being turned on its head today as a part of the the, the uh, deconstruction of our society. But even in the world, there is this sense of pursuing what is good. There is this sense of nobility. But the difference is this. We define what is good not according to some kind of community consensus. We define what is good according to the character of God and what he determines as good. As a result... As Yarbrough states in in his commentary, he says, a pastor, a, a candidate for leadership, should love the good, not only in an idle philosophical sense, but by being passionate in embodying it and zealous to see that what is good flourish in and out of the church. And again, that's not just something for elders to be concerned about. This is something that all Christians should, in fact, It's an interesting thing to observe about this letter. This term good, the term agathos, from which we get agatha and uh, that that Greek word, it occurs with with unusual frequency in Paul's letter to Titus. You find it more regularly used than in his other letters, and that indicates that there was a distinct need for leadership in light of their very good background that they have a focus on that which is good. We find it, for example, in Titus 1, verse 16, in the negative sense. We're going to get into this in our next study of Titus, but we read of the false teachers who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. There's the word that's used again. We see it in Titus chapter 2, verse 5. Young women are to be taught by the older women to be sensible, pure workers at home. And the NASB translates the term then as kind, but it's the same term as good. They are to be good, inherently good, reflecting the goodness of God, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. They're not to be pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Titus 3 verse 1, Titus wants to remind all, uh, was to remind all Cretan believers to be subject to the rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed. Over and over and over, Paul emphasizes this virtue of goodness. And, and understand this, in our day and age, how often do we really think of that which is inherently good? Do we set our minds to consider, to contemplate, to meditate on that which is good? Again, in our society, that is all being deconstructed. And that which is evil is being promoted as as a virtue. 
But we as Christians, by virtue of our calling, by virtue of what salvation was given to us to, to do, to transform us, to become, that we are to be those known as having a preoccupation. You could say even an obsession with thinking about that which is good. And that is to mark all aspects of our lives. Think of it in terms of your recreation, your entertainment. Think of it in terms of your family relationships, the decisions that you make. The question is, what is good? What is good? And as we are increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, we will increasingly love the things which he loves. And that means loving what is good. Thirdly, prudence. Prudence. We find this word sensible. The word sensible is another compound word. It's made up of two words, one meaning sound or healthy, and the other one meaning thoughts or thinking. So you put those two together, and this word translated as sensible speaks of sound thinking, healthy thinking. The term speaks of, of one who is in control of oneself, particularly as it relates to the mind. That, that he, as a, as a candidate, is one who, who, who recognizes the tremendous gift that God has given to us in our minds and the stewardship that he's been given and spends time and energy and and disciplines himself so as to use that incredible gift the right way. This describes one who has a well-balanced state of mind resulting from habitual self-restraint. It is the exact opposite of what we read back in verse 7 where Paul prohibits the quick-tempered person, right? That person who is given to outbursts of anger, who has no restraint. And again, this is a cardinal virtue, and why is that? Well, to a very, very large extent, all of the problems that we experience today in our own character, in our own lives, in our own experience, can be traced back. You can say on the one hand, in one dimension, ultimately to Adam, we, we recognize that by virtue of total depravity, and his original sin, but we also look at the problems in our lives and we realize, you know what, the problems I have in my character, especially uh, speaking as a regenerate person, uh, can be traced back to decisions that wrong in my life at some point in the past. The, the struggles that I have can be traced back to some fundamental problem in my thinking where I have deviated from God's truth and have thought thoughts about myself or about others that are not consistent, or thoughts about God that is not true to who he is. And as a result, Paul says, you must look for for men, for candidates for this office, who have learned, as, as we would say in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, to take every thought captive and to bring it into submission to the lordship of Christ. This is what is needed. Alexander Strock, in his wonderful book on biblical eldership, describes it this way. And he, has, he, he associates it well to the kind of responsibilities that an elder has. To be prudent is to be sound-minded, discreet, and sensible. 
able to keep an objective perspective in the face of problems and disagreements. Prudence is an essential quality of mind for a person who must exercise a great deal of practical discretion in handling people and their problems. Prudence tempers pride, authoritarianism, and self-justification. But it's also important to note, as I've said already, that this is not just a quality for elder candidates. This is a quality, quality of sensibility. It's a term that is found, again, with very unusual frequency in Paul's letter to Titus. And it again indicates that this was a fundamental problem among the Cretans. And that problem remained as part of that, that homardiological hangover that those believers took into their Christian lives. The problem of lacking sense, lacking wisdom, lacking prudence. Titus 2 verse 2 says this, older men, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible. They are to manifest this very quality. In Titus 2 verses 3 to 5, where the focus goes on to the women, the older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage that they may encourage the young women. Now that verb for encourage actually is, is from the same word to be sensible or prudent. It means to train in prudence. The older women are to train in prudence, the younger women. In other words, it's assumed that the older women will have this quality and that they, through the young women, will instruct those women in sensibility and how to use the mind the right way. And you can see that then further on in verse 5, so that the younger women, they will love their husbands, love their children, and be sensible, be prudent, wise. Young men, you're not off the hook. Titus 2 verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men uh, to be sensible. Reminds me of, uh, I was in South Africa a couple of years ago, and the missionaries there took me to one of the game parks and told me of, um, in one of the game parks, some of the old male elephants had, had died, and they were just juvenile males. And the, the juvenile males were just tearing up the park, just push over trees for no reason, just demolish things, wreck things, you know. And so the solution to the problem was to bring in some, some old, old male elephants from some other, from some other uh, park. And as soon as they brought them in, it cured the problem with the uh, juveniles. Well, that's the problem with juvenile male young men today. They have, that, they have that tendency. And they just think, well, this is my life. I can, I can do this. Who cares? But no, Paul says, urge the young men to be wise to be prudent. You see it in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. Every Christian is to strive for the right manner of thinking. This is to be paramount in our, our list of priorities for personal growth as believers. We are to be praying for this and relying upon the grace and empowerment that God provides that our minds would be changed to begin more consistently thinking God's thoughts after him as he has revealed himself to be in his word. That's a model of wisdom. There's another word here, number four, impartiality. 
it's communicated in this word just. Just, the term just, refers to that which is in accordance with high standards of rectitude. That which is fair. Say that which is righteous. And the emphasis on this word, this context, relates particularly to interpersonal relationships. This person has a has a priority in his life, a principle of living according to what is just, what is righteous, and that he will sooner bring upon himself a cost rather than put it onto someone else for the sake of pursuing justice. Righteousness, high standard of rectitude. This too was a a virtue that the Greeks prized. But the difference here is that unlike the Greeks, as Paul talks about this idea of justice, he he doesn't define it. He doesn't expect it in terms of how the popular culture, even the philosophical culture, would define justice. Instead, As all the biblical writers do, the one who defines justice is God. He is the righteous judge. That term righteous is the same one there in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, the same term as we find here for being just. He is the just judge. Peter says the same thing in in Acts chapter 10 verse 34 where, where, where Peter says that God is not one to show partiality. He, he's the just one. He, he is impartial. He is objective. He's fair. Now, taking that concept into the behavior of a, of a candidate for eldership, one, one writer puts it this way, such a man is easy to do business with. He's trusted and he's unswayed by personal interest or social pressure. He's not given in to partiality. He's, he's not given to showing preference. He's not bought. He's not manipulated. He's committed to truth. The candidate for this office was to manifest this objectivity already in his own life. And that was a, a mark that he was ready for the hard work of ministry. And this was necessary, not just because the, the kind of ministry uh, with dealing with people and problems and difficult things to work through requires that kind of mindset. But he needed to manifest this because his life was to be a blueprint. His life was to show other Christians what justice looks like by his own behavior. Again, we see this very term used in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, that the grace of God has appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly. We've seen that already. That's prudence, but also to live justly. To live righteously, that's the term that is used there. All believers have been instructed by the grace of God toward this end. Number five, godliness. Godliness. And you might say, well, all of these are godly, aren't they? Well, this one in particular is a reference to godliness. It's the word devout. It can be translated as holy because it is a term. It is, a, it is an adjective that is used elsewhere, particularly in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation several times, to describe God. He is this word. He is holy. But here Paul takes that description of God being holy and, and uses it as an expectation for candidates for 
leadership. It speaks of one in this sense used to describe a human being. It speaks of one who is devoted to God, who is pleasing to God, who is acceptable to God. Whereas the previous characteristic that we saw, the word just, can be seen as a, as a horizontal virtue, how we interact with people. This one speaks of our vertical responsibility, our vertical relationship. And such a one is godly because he reflects God. He reflects that kind of, of uh, virtue, that kind of holiness, because he is so devoted to God that his life becomes an ever-clarifying mirror, becomes more and more clear that he is devoted to this. The uh, other commentator writes this, the life of this elder overseer is to be just such a life, fully dedicated to the glory of God and brought into conformity to the will and purpose of God. Now, we've seen a very similar, a synonymous term already, haven't we? If you go back to the very first verse of this chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. If you look back there, you'll see the very last word in our Bibles of verse 1. It's part of Paul's description of the purpose of his own, his own apostleship. Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for or on behalf of the faith of the chosen of God and knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Now, it's a slightly different word than what we find here in, uh, in, in verse 8, but it still communicates the same idea, godliness. And we also see this, this synonym used in this text that I keep going back to over and over again, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Faith here brings salvation to all men, instructing us to live sensibly, that's prudence, to live righteously, that's justice, and to live godly. Sensibility refers to the use of our minds. It's under control, righteously to the relationship that we have with our neighbors. And then godly is that vertical relationship that we live lives that are devoted fully, unquestionably to God. Now there's a, another quality that is listed here in verse 8, the quality of self-control. Self-control. Right at the end of verse 8, self-control refers to one who has his emotions, impulses, and desires. We saw that word for sensibility, and we defined that word as having thoughts under control. This one is a little different in that it speaks more to one's emotions and passions and bodily appetites. To be sensible means your thoughts are being submitted to the Lordship of Christ, that how you think, the pattern of your thought, where your ideas go, that that is being submitted, controlled in conformity to Jesus Christ. But this term here speaks of the, the rest of you. It speaks of the affections and the passions and the bodily appetites. And Paul says here that the man who is, is a candidate for the office of overseer already needs to be marked as a man who controls these things. 
He's an indulgent, gluttonous person who indulges the flesh. But rather than being enslaved to the flesh, he is one who keeps his body under control. He is one who can manage his appetites, who is not in sub- subject to them, but has subjected them to himself. We all know the danger of, of a person to have the flesh under control. The book of Proverbs speaks of it. Proverbs 25, 28, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. In those days, in the, in the ancient world, if you didn't have a city with, wall, with, with a wall around it, you were, you were an open target. Anybody would come and just plunder you. It was the most important thing to having a city. So think of it. Think of building a city in those days without a wall. And, and, and the, the, the wise man here says that in the same way is a person who has not learned how to control his passions. Jerry Bridges has a, a helpful discussion on this in his book, Respectable Sins. I encourage you to, to read that book. Very, very helpful. He talks a lot in that book, in a chapter about self-control, and says that the absence of self-control is one of those acceptable things today in the church. And so he defines it this way. He says, self-control is, quote, a governance or prudent control of one's desires, cravings, impulse, and passions. It is saying no when we should say no. It is moderation in legitimate desires and activities and absolute restraint in areas that are clearly sinful. It would, for example, involve moderation in watching television, but absolute restraint in viewing internet pornography. It covers every area of life and requires an unceasing control with the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls. Notice what what Bridges is saying. He's saying that self-control is going to mark, if you have it, it's going to mark everything. Even those areas of liberty, it's often a mistake that that Christians will have and say, well, if I am am free, it means in some limitation. And as Bridges says, no, the self-controlled person will recognize where there are those areas of legitimacy and, and even in those areas, so as not to become enslaved to them, the Christian will be able to exercise restraint, will be able to put on healthy boundaries, even in those areas of permission, permitted areas of involvement. But it certainly means that in those areas that are declared and defined and described as sinful, the self-controlled Christian puts up strong Oh, and absolute boundaries on those things and refuses to participate. That's the picture of self-control. And that is a hugely important quality for anyone, certainly in leadership, but also for anyone in our day and age where indulgence and decadence is, is the rule of the day. That any kind of restraint is considered to be an infringement upon personal rights and freedoms. But understand this, that that is not the picture of the Christian life. In fact, what do we read of in Galatians 5, verse 22 to 23? What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
that when the Spirit's work is manifest in a person, it naturally produces this ability to, to draw these hard and fast uh, boundaries of what is clear as sin in Scripture, but also to draw the proper boundaries in the areas of freedom so that the person doesn't become enslaved to that which otherwise perhaps escapes the comment of Scripture. And speaking of the importance of this quality, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about self-control. He says, I defy you to read the life of any saint that has ever adorned the life of the church without seeing at once that the greatest characteristic in the life of that saint was discipline and order. Invariably, it is the universal characteristic of all the outstanding men and women of God. Obviously, it is something that is thoroughly scriptural and absolutely essential. He's putting his finger on something that is so very much needed today, and that is, there is, especially among young Christians and perhaps even seminary candidates, those wanting to learn or are already involved in in pastoral ministry and you're aspiring to to be useful in the hands of God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, well, you know what the key to this? A fundamental key is learning how to control the passions and the appetites of the body. You fail there, Paul would say, you're disqualified, or at least not qualified now. But that goes to all of us. All of us as believers would aspire to be used by God mightily, to be to be instruments in his hands for the edification of saints and formation of the world. But understand that a large part of this usefulness and efficacy is going to be tied to this key character, quality. Well, there is one more, and uh, we don't really have time for it. Now I'll just summarize it briefly, and we will get into this when we start our next session on on, uh, Titus and look at verses 10 to 16 and the problem of the false believers who are advocating a different teaching. Let me summarize it briefly. It's this. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Just a few words about this. It's interesting to note when he gets to verse 9 and this last character quality, this is the only one now where he moves away from from uh, character uh, qualities per se, and instead speaks of more of ministry skill or, or the, the, the activity within ministry. What's also important to note that, that back in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul summarizes this quality with just one word, which we translate as able to teach. But here he has an extended discussion on it, he goes into a, a pretty significant description of what this character quality looks like in terms of aptitude, and it's probably this, as in verse 16. There were some big problems there in Cretan context. There was something very important at stake, namely doctrine. Doctrine. And that's why Paul is, is so concerned that the one who would be a, an elder, a steward of God's church, be faithful, faithful to the word. Well, more on this next time. 
But let me um, move ahead to some implications here as we close our time. Number one, as I've said throughout, pray for your elders. Specifically, as you pray for us, pray that God would, he would work within us so that we would not neglect but grow in these virtues. That that we would cultivate these things and excel still more, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.1. That is our duty. Pray for us in that. Number two, examine your own life for these confirming virtues, generosity, nobility, prudence, impartiality, godliness, self-control, and, and faithfulness, faithfulness to sound doctrine. Examine your own life. Are these things manifest? Do you have these things increasing in your life? Do you, do you recognize that, that, that you are more generous to be with your, and your resources, that you have a, a, an attraction to that which is principally good that you never had before, that you're noticing that your thinking is being clarified and is stable, and you're thinking more of God's thoughts there's impartiality. You're, you're more dedicated to objectivity and, and, and refuse to show partiality. There's godliness. There's this desire, this devotion to God to see him reflected in your life, that there's self-control of those passions that never used to be under control, that now are being controlled. And then there's this desire to be consistent with what God has revealed. Are those things existing and growing in your life. Examine yourself and, of course, in light of all of that, rely on the provision of God, the grace that he has given. You see, here's an important point, and I need to emphasize this. The Greeks had their virtues as well. In fact, some of these virtues they expressed as these cardinal marks of distinguished character. But here's the very, very big difference. They could never manifest those virtues in and of themselves. They always failed and it never pleased God. But the difference is, as Paul says in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared. And inherent in that idea is that it has appeared not because we are worthy of it, not because we just need a little help It's because we have nothing in ourselves, nothing at all. But God in his provision has met our need. And he has provided the grace both for the the salvation and the forgiveness of our sins, but he has also provided that same unmerited grace for the development of these very distinguished characteristics. So as you look at these things and pray about them, remember this. They only are truly developed solely by the grace of operating. Never think you have the power of your own strength to produce these things. Rely upon him and embrace that unmerited favor from God. Let's pray. Father, again, we are so thankful for your word, which so, so clearly describes what we know is needed and what we know is true and right. We've, we've seen these qualities manifest in the lives of others and they draw our attention. And when we see these manifested in others, we say we want to be impacted by that. We want to, we want to be like that and be influenced by that. We see the tremendous benefit it brings to your people. And so we pray that in all of our lives, you would manifest these things 
for your glory's sake so that you would be made much of in our lives as we recognize you as the source of all these things, but also so that we would be lights in a, in a dark world through the power of a very different lifestyle, attracting the lost to the source of that difference. That's in your grace. We thank you for that grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.